in my SRE class at Riverston this weekend, this week and Tuesday, the kids were shocked to find out that when I was a kid, there was no such thing as the internet. They, they were just like flabbergasted. Well, how did you do this? How did you do that? And I know this is hard to understand, but it has not always been around. And long before the internet, I remember it was in 1984. I know the year because I remember we learned about the California aqueduct. So it was in 1984, in primary school, my teacher said, someday you're going to be able to use a computer from your house and buy things from a store. And I was like, that sounds weird. Hmm. It was, it was a bit unbelievable. I was like, we'll see. We'll see about that. And, oh, life could be like the Jetsons, you know, like the old cartoon. And we'll just be flying around. And Now, I would have been even more skeptical if my teacher would have said that someday I would carry a thin wireless, portable color television in my pocket. And that it's also a phone where I can call people. That I could store and play my entire music library from it, not from big old cassettes or records. That it was a camera. It shot videos. That it was a video game system all controlled, without buttons, you could just touch the screen and move things around. I would have been like, what? Crazy. But here we are. And that's exactly what we have. And I could check a price in a store from all over the world in seconds. I could get prices for a particular item, a particular model number from anywhere in the world, all at one time, right here, in my hand, no wires. That was crazy to think about. So the internet, we can say, needless to say, it's changed the way we shop. It's changed the way we live. People wonder how they did anything before it came around. We have a digital world. It's packed with information right at our fingertips. We can compare models and prices, yet even with all of our research, we can still be led astray by shady sellers and products of poor quality because man hasn't changed. Men are still the same. We still innately are greedy and flawed. So we'll be in Isaiah 41. Last week, we talked about in Isaiah 40 how God was incomparable. He was above all. He was wiser than any God, any man. And this message is directed to God's people who claimed to know and worship God, but they acted like he didn't know their problems and he couldn't help them even if he did. God said in Isaiah 40, 28, Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. So he's like, haven't you heard? Why are you living like I don't exist and I have no power when there's no one like me? And this week he's going to be talking to his people and almost in a court of law and saying, compare me to your idols. See how we stack up. Read the reviews. Can any idol give you what I'm offering you? Can any idol supply what I have promised to do for you? And it's interesting. We can spend a lot of hours researching products, but we don't take much time to consider our ways before God. I mean, a product that we know is not going to last forever a product that it may be a game or a toy and we want the best price or we want the best value for money. If we're not satisfied with cheap, faulty goods, then how can we insist on loving lesser gods? How can we follow after gods that can't give us anything? 
when God gives us eternity, we'll be with him forever, and how we live our lives on earth today matters before him. Our tendency is to keep propping up our idols, to add a couple more screws into the base to keep them sturdy, rather than just chucking them and following God. That's our tendency. So may the Lord speak to each one of us today that instead of propping up idols, that we would seek the God who upholds us. Our idol, Your idol needs you. You don't need it. You don't need your idol. You need God. I need God. And may the word speak to that point today. Father, thank you for your word, that it is powerful, it is true, and I pray that every heart here today would receive of your truth, that you would minister that you would draw us near to your presence and you would be with us here. You would meet with every heart and minister according to your grace. We thank you for your word and that you've given it to us so that we can learn of you, we can learn what pleases you and glorify you. Thank you again for being an awesome God who is eternal and powerful and wise in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah 41, starting in verse 1. Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near and let, then let them speak. Let them, excuse me, let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as dust to his sword or as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them? and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. God wants people to think. He invites them to reason. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, he says, Come, let's reason together. Let's talk this through. And here he says, Everybody, let's come together and discuss this. And he puts idols on trial and those who trust in them. He's like he's saying, order in the court, we're going to get a just verdict today. We want to know the truth. And before we jump into explaining the chapter, I want to make two minor points. The first one is that this chapter and the events of it, which are literal events, they can't be nailed down to one particular point in time. Uh, I, I don't know exactly when they've been fulfilled in the past, or when they, because I know there will be a future fulfillment as well. Better than debating the timing of it, it's good to look to the God who is the first and the last, who is the faithful God, the one who raised up Abraham, the children of Israel. He is going to be faithful into the future. So looking to God. And the second, there is debate among theologians whether this one from the east that we see in verse chapter, verse 2. It says, who raised up one from the east? Who is this one that's being referred to? Some say that it's Cyrus. Others claim it's Abraham. I'm inclined to believe that Abraham is a better choice because his name is explicitly mentioned later in the text and that it follows his life exactly, that God called him out of the east. He called him out of Haran. He called him from a land of idolatry into a land that God would show him and that there was that promise that everywhere the sole of his foot tread God would give him that land, and that all nations through him would be blessed. It also talks about there, talks about pursuing them in verse 3, going away he had not gone. 
made him to rule over kings. When Lot was captured by those five kings, God empowered Abraham and 318 of his servants to pursue these four kings and deliver the five kings out of their hand. It was a miraculous victory. It was God that did that. It wasn't because Abraham was this ferocious fighter and his servants were just like Spartans or something. Uh, it was God. God did it. So regardless of one who the one is, God raised her from the east, we can know God is the one who raised him up. He's the one who establishes people. He's the one who gives us strength. It's he who calls in righteousness. It's he who subdues nations. He said in Daniel, Daniel said, hey God, you lift up nations and you put them down. It's Jesus who said in Revelation 22:13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So God has made these everlasting promises because he's eternal. He can give us eternal promises that we can count on. And he was faithful to Abraham. He will be faithful to us. He birthed the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, brought them into the promised land. And through faith in Christ, the promises God made to Abraham, they are available for us because the new covenant confirms that the children of Abraham are not determined by human bloodline, but by faith in God. It says that, if you turn there, Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, we'll see that the children of faith are the sons of Abraham. We share that eternal bloodline of faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 6 through 9. And just this week in our discipleship course, Jesus was addressing people and his mother and brothers were outside. And they said, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are here. And he says, who is my mother and my brothers? People who do the will of God. The same is my mother, my sister, my brother. So closer than a blood relation on earth, a blood relation that will fade and end, those who do the will of God will endure forever. So Galatians 3, 6, it says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So as he received the promise from God, those who trust in God today will also receive the blessing. Though not Jewish by birth, the scripture says those are the true Jews, the true children of God, who trust him and obey him. Let's go back to Isaiah 41, starting in verse 5. The coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs, that it might not totter. We read of accounts in the Bible when the enemies of Israel were coming to fight them, and they would always bring their idols along. They thought, well, if we bring our idols, they'll give us strength. It's kind of like a good luck charm for the battle. If the idol's here... 
it will be protected. For example, the Philistines, they did that once. And David was like, Lord, what do I do with all these idols they left behind after they defeated them? And they were to destroy them. So there's this humorous scene here. We have the skilled craftsmen working together. They're kind of inspiring each other, encouraging each other. They're saying, well, sure, the last idol we abandoned on the, on the battlefield, it didn't quite work out, but this one's going to be better. This one's going to be more solid. It's going to be made of more valuable materials. It's, I'm just going to do a better job with it, and we're going to get some reward in the end. And so one of them's like, okay, this one's ready for soldering, and the other one nails it down. He's like, oh, yeah, that's solid. It's not going anywhere. So they're, they're, they're a bit pumped up about their idols, not realizing that all idols totter, and they must be supported. They have no strength of their own. And when we seek security in anything, when we love anything of this world besides God, or instead of God, it will always lack. And our great folly, even in, even as Christians, we can fall into the trap of idolatry. Once in Israel, there were two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, who were wicked before the Lord. And they were having this battle with the Philistines, and things weren't going well. So they thought, well, let's bring the Ark of God. We'll take it out of the holy, most holy place. We'll carry it to the field of battle. And because God, God's presence dwells over the ark, we'll kind of bring God with us and we'll treat this ark of God like an idol. It's kind of like a good luck charm. It's going to get us over the edge. Well, God allowed the ark to be captured. The Philistines took the ark and they put it before their God in the temple of Dagon. Now, the next day after they put the ark in the temple of Dagon, they noticed Dagon had tipped over during the night. Right, he like bowed down before the ark. Like, that's strange. And so they put him back up and they connect the base back to the ground. And this is what happens the next day. 1 Samuel 5, 4 and 5. It says, And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. And I love the, the King James. It says, only the stump of him was left. Only the stump was left. He, this idol image fell down. Its head breaks off. Its hands break off. It's totally destroyed. But can you imagine the solution they came up with after the second day that Dagon fell over and fell apart? Instead of throwing away the scraps of their broken idol, they got rid of the Ark of God. They said, all right, (laughs) this Ark is not good for Dagon. So we're just going to get it out of here. We're going to move it. And God plagued the nation for eight months as it moved from place to place to place. I imagine they patched Dagon back together stronger than ever. And they put some extra nails in his base They continued to worship Dagon. They avoided stepping on the place that Dagon fell. Because where his body fell, they reverenced that place more than the God who knocked him over. And they propped him back up again. It doesn't make sense, does it? It's so easy to trust ourselves or some tottering idols to give them reverence more than the living God and not even realize it. 
So when our idols are thrown down, we tend to get angry. And we tend to slap a bit of spackle on it. And we try to secure the base a little firmer for the next time. But what we have to do is say, you know, this thing, I don't need it. It needs me. I've got to maintain it. I have to help it stand up. It can't save me. It doesn't love me. It can't speak for me. It can't speak to me. It's, it may be made of valuable things. I may have invested much in it, but it's not worthy of worship. And to instead worship the true God before all the nations will bow, before Jesus Christ, before whom all people will bow the knee and say, you are God and there is no other. So instead of being angry when, and that's some, that's a way we can tell when we do have an idol. If someone messes with our idol, we get a little upset about it. Uh, it's time to repent, to, to grind it into powder and to say, I'm serving God now. Verse eight. But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jacob is the son of Isaac. His name meant heel catcher or supplanter. And God changed his name to Israel after he wrestled with God and prevailed. That name Israel, it's, it's a really broad meaning. It has a wide range of meaning, let's say. It, it has the idea of wrestling with God, of clinging to him, of overcoming. It means God rules or he who prevails with God. Isn't it cool that God called Abraham his friend? To be called a friend of God, to have a closeness like that where you could be called a friend? Jesus called his disciples that in John 15, 14, and 15. He said, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. So those who follow Jesus and obey him, God calls us his friends. Remember, we're children of faith. Just like Abraham was a friend of God, we too can be friends with God. Gentiles by birth, sheep of another fold that God has brought and invited into his own fold. A wild tree. It's like branches that he's grafted into the true vine. The planting of the Lord. Now think about these promises here that God made to people from the ends of the earth. So to everybody who will answer him. It says, we're chosen by God. He will not cast us away. He doesn't get tired of us. We shouldn't be afraid or dismayed because he's with us. He will strengthen us. He will help and uphold us with his righteous right hand. Idols have to be nailed down. They have to be carried from place to place. But God, he's the one who will uphold us. He holds us up. I had friends who uh, buried an image of St. Joseph in their front yard to help sell their house. I'd never heard about this practice. Apparently there are kits you can buy, the internet told me. 
I don't know that I would recommend it based upon the, the story, but I was a bit surprised when they said, hey, do you have a shovel? I was like, sure. And they came back with a muddy shovel and a very muddy image, you know, a little dirty St. Joseph. St. Joseph couldn't dig his own hole, and St. Joseph couldn't get himself out of the ground once he was put in the hole. So my thinking is, how can St. Joseph help sell your house? If he can't wash himself, can he save you? Right? Someone told me they used to travel in an airplane, and they would bring a statue of the Virgin Mary with them and put it in the seat next to them and strap it in to protect them. And I've seen the little pictures in San Diego. You see it all the time. People with little images or like a picture on the rearview mirror of their car. And just that image of someone sitting in a plane, strapping in this image, who's protecting who? The, the image, you're like, whoa, whoa, careful with this. Don't knock it over. Sometimes in the festivals, they'll be carrying something and the image falls down. Everyone's like, oh, no. But who's protecting who? That image cannot protect you. You have to protect it. When Gideon cut down his father's idol, right? He had a ball in his yard. He, he got up in the night. He cut down the grove. He took his father's oxen and he made a sacrifice to the one true God there. The people in the village were incensed that he would do this. But Gideon's father had the right perspective. He said, if Baal is God, let him protect himself. Let him defend his own altar. If he's been offended and he's a true God, let him plead his own case. The living God that we serve, he's promised to fight our battles. He has promised to be our friend. He says, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will uphold you with my right hand. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to protect you. You don't have to protect me. You know, God is more than capable to defend his own glory. He is God. And he's able to uphold us. Isaiah 41.11 Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contend with you. Those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Less if we could get that slide ready. Thanks. When these words were spoken, the Jews had many enemies. They were historically so hated that in the late 1800s, the term anti-Semitism was used to specifically mean hatred and bigotry towards the Jewish people. Now, I, I put this up here because the last time I flew to Israel with El Al, which is an Israeli airline, I found it interesting how they go... So I went from Bangkok, and if you see that red line on the bottom, notice how it doesn't go over any land. Israel doesn't have diplomatic relations with a lot of countries in the Middle East. And because they've been, they have had an occasion in the early 2000s when they were shot at with a missile, they, they go around and go over the, the water, which I thought was interesting. Also, another point is that El Al Airlines is the only commercial one 
to include anti-missile technology on their passenger planes. So they have chaff or flares, so that if there's a heat-seeking missile, it'll deploy these flares that will hopefully give them some time to evade. So when you do go to Israel today, they are a people who are, are very aware that not everyone is friends with them. It's the only place I've ever been where just a box by the side of the road was exploded because they weren't sure if we had a bomb or not. You'd hear like, boom, wow. All right, I'm in Israel. It was just one of those moments where you realize I am in a very different place than where I'm used to. Thanks for that, Les. So that these words, where it's saying all those incensed against you, they'll be ashamed, disgraced, and as nothing. He's saying it to people who had enemies, who have enemies, to Christians, God's people, people of faith all over the world who suffer persecution for their faith. He's saying, a day's coming when the people that hate you and want to kill you, you'll look for them and you won't find any. Because I'm going to protect you. I'm going to uphold you. All the enemies that seem to surround you, I'm going to subdue them without a trace. What comfort that brings to someone who trusts God. And even when we have enemies, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who use you, who persecute you. Love them. And that's, that's a divine love that would love. And it's faith that allows us to love that way. And the Holy Spirit within us. The last time I was in Israel, there was a rash of stabbings of Israelis. I think there was 30 instances in, in a month and a half where Orthodox Jews were being targeted. And though they were targets of hate, verse 12 says, you will look for those who strive and contend with you and not find them. What a promise that God will protect his people. He says, I, the Lord... Your God will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. If you're there as a child, when you're holding the hand of your dad, it doesn't matter who's around, because nothing's going to happen to you when you're there. This is the mind of a child. But see, as with, with people with eyes of faith, we realize that God is more powerful and protective, and he has the power to uphold us much better than a human dad ever could because he's always with us he'll never leave us we'll never be apart from him so take hold of his hand let him uphold you let him keep you from stumbling there's a spiritual battle today someday it's going to be over there's wars in the world today someday those are going to be over and even in the battle we can trust in him verse 40 verse 14 of chapter 41. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. I was an apprentice for four years learning mechanical insulation when I lived in the States. And as an apprentice, one of the journeymen or the mechanic who was, who would, there were many different journeymen, 
That's what you would call someone who's completed their training and now is kind of in charge. Uh, one of them used to call me his worm. He's like, hey, worm, once you're my, once you're my worm, you're always my worm. And I'm like, what's with the worm anyway, you weirdo? He's like, well, you're a worm because you're low to the ground. And he'd just say that. He's like, you're low. You're as low as it gets, and you better listen to me. Um, you know, there's not a lot of upward mobility for an earthworm. Not a lot. If you, I was laughing to myself looking up the life cycle of an earthworm. It's like two sentences long. The, the whole thing is summed up in like, yep, they are, they're born, they eat decomposing material, they breed and they die. There's just not a lot there. And so God calls Jacob a worm or a maggot. That's more of the, the meaning of this word. He says, but the Lord, the Holy One, I'm your Redeemer. I'm going to redeem you, the Lord of Israel. I'm going to change you. I'm going to take you from being that worm, low to the ground in a sense, humble and, I mean, not low to the ground, but under the ground, and I'm going to make you like a threshing sledge where you can just cut the mountains down and the hills will be like chaff before you. God's going to do this transforming work to make his people powerful when they had no strength. They had no respect. But he's like, I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to help you. I wonder, are God, is God and promises in his word good enough for us? Is it good enough for you? As I read this passage, I just thought, man, I need to trust God more. We need to, to see how much more we need to trust him. Just in everyday things. Because if we trusted God, if we believed his promises, if we put his word into our lives in practice, regardless of our circumstances, we could, as the text says, rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Sometimes our lives are quite devoid of rejoicing. We don't feel like it. We feel like everything is against us. That's what Jacob said at one point. He's like, everything's against me. You know, my son, he's eaten by wild beasts. My son's come back. We're starving. Now they want to take Benjamin back to Egypt. Everything's against me. But he didn't know that the son he thought had been eaten by wild beasts was the second in command of all Egypt and that he would be brought into a plentiful land and protected in the land of Goshen. He just didn't see it yet. He didn't realize it. And sometimes we're like Jacob. We need to be like Israel, the one who who prevails with God. We feel like worms as far as defenseless, <clears throat> but that God would redeem us, that he would send his son to die for our sins, that we could be born again and redeemed, that he could have mercy on us. We are as undeserving of favor and grace as a worm before a holy God, and yet he says, I'm going to redeem you. I want to hold you by the hand. I want to be with you. And I want you to be with me forever. He's included people in his eternal plan. So we need God's help to maintain this eternal perspective. we not beating ourselves up because of our failure. Or not being arrogant because we are the redeemed. To remember, hey, yeah, I am as a worm. But God has redeemed me. 
He loves me. My value, my identity is in him, not in what I can do because of him. Verse 17, the poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Most of us know when we're hungry or thirsty, our bodies have been created by God to be dependent on food and water for survival. For us, water is just a tap away. It's not very hard to obtain water. But for people who are thirsty in a parched desert, there's no water to be found even by digging. It would be a horrible thing indeed to come to a place where you expect water to be and you You've planned, like, okay, we'll stop at the brook or the stream and we'll get our water filled up there, and you arrive and no water. Big problem because your life hangs in the balance. The people in Isaiah's day, they relied upon seasonal rain, the the early and the latter rain. They would always use these water pots to store the water so that they could have it in their cisterns and be able to eat and to feed their herds and flocks. It says here, the voice of the poor and needy who had no means of obtaining water, they'd be heard by God. And he says, I'm not going to forsake them. I'm going to give them what they need. In our culture, it's like supply and demand. Hey, if someone, I've got a bottle of water. Someone give me a dollar for it. Hey, I'll give you two for it. Oh, okay. I'll give you five for it. All right, even better. But the ones who don't have the money to even make a bid, he's like, hey, I'm going to supply you water, not just old stale water from runoff from your roof. I'm going to create a fountain of water. So you'll have plenty and abundance. A, a barren wasteland, it's going to grow into a fruitful plain. And you have these seven trees here. None of them grow na- naturally in a desert, in a wilderness. They require a lot of water. They, they require a better environment for their kind, but God would make them to grow and to thrive. He says, I'm going to put all these trees together, and when you see these trees growing together, you'll know that God did it. That no arborist, no landscaper, no one would have been able to do this but me. So I take this prophecy literally. If it hasn't happened yet, I know it most certainly will. And there's a great spiritual picture, too, in Psalm 1, where it says, uh, "If you know, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And I want to be like that kind of tree. A tree that has access to water. A tree that is fruitful in and out of season. Whose leaves are not withering. As lovely as it would be to see an oasis, and and I've seen during my travels like to uh, Queenstown in, in New Zealand, they have this really lovely park where you can see 
different trees and plants that have been imported from all over. Pretty exotic trees. And like, wow, I've never seen that kind of tree before. Um, that, that was cool. It was memorable. I took pictures. But much more picturesque and beautiful is the change that God does in the heart of a person who's born again, who is now filled with the living water of the Holy Spirit because they are now a new creation. And they have access to the presence of God because he lives within them. And they can be refreshed. And so this picture is really true for all of us who put our faith in Jesus. And this being filled with the Spirit isn't just for new believers only, but for all the poor and the needy who thirst. Somehow you can be a Christian who's genuine in faith. Your doctrinal beliefs can be perfectly sound, but you can become dry and empty. And I think you only have to be a Christian for a season to realize that that can be the case. At one time, you rejoiced in the Lord. You drank deeply of his love and his grace. But now our minds, it's like we can get cluttered with knowledge and confusion. And I've looked at people that almost have a a sad hopelessness or despair in their eyes when they still have these promises that God can make you fruitful and he can make you find rest in him. Consider what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. If you have everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ, you never need be dry again. The things that we drink up of this world, it will leave us thirsty. Have you guys ever had that? You drink something and you're like, oh, it doesn't quench my thirst, like milk or something. There's certain things that you drink and it just really doesn't do it for you. But as a Christian, you don't have to go on being thirsty. If we're trying to satisfy our thirst with things of this world, we will be thirsty. You will thirst again. But those, even if your tongue fails with thirst, you can cry out to Jesus and drink deeply of him, be filled with his spirit, and you need never thirst again. We get thirsty when we stop resorting to that fountain and look for fountains that are merely broken cisterns that can't hold water, that can't satisfy And we become disillusioned and dry, just dry. Verse 21, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing. Your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. So God demands the idols and those who trust in him. He says, present your case. Idols, do something. Do something good. Do something bad. Say something. Just do anything. Let them predict the future. Let them explain what's happened in the past. Do something to prove you are worthy to be worshipped as a god. Like, here's your chance. Say something. 
and the carved mouth doesn't move. There's no sound coming from it. No response from the image. And those who fashioned them dared not utter a word. Even if they were to speak, it would be a pretty cool trick. You know, you make something out of wood and it could talk to you. That would be kind of cool. I mean, it would be weird, but it would be a pretty cool party trick to just make something out of wood and have it speak to you or explain anything. But even if it could explain something, it doesn't mean it has the power to do anything. When God spoke, he said, let there be light, and there was light. There's actual power in God's words. He just says something, and it happens. Men say something, does it always happen? No, it doesn't always happen. We can give our word. We can swear on a Bible. doesn't mean anything. But God, his words endure forever. God, whatever he says, he always does. He's not dependent on anything or anyone. That idol is dependent on a man to craft it. It's dependent upon a man to to, uh, nail it down to a pedestal, deprive a man of water for a few days, and he dies. But God, he's not dependent on anything because he's God. Perhaps this will help you. Idols in our lives are often good things that have eclipsed our affections and practical trust in God. It's something that has we look to instead of God. We love. There's affections in our hearts that should be reserved for God that we have for this thing. And an idol is no stronger than you at your weakest point. There was a point in my life when my reputation was my idol, and I grew very weary of trying to prop it up. I just gave up at a point. I said, Lord, this is in your hands. But I tried, and I got angry, and I struggled. There was a time in my life when music was my idol, and it required me to go to shops and to buy the music. It required me to to put it into a player, to play it, to sing along with it. It needed me. If sport was your idol, it would require you to train, it would require you to tune in at the right time. If beauty or physique is your idol, it involves time and cosmetics and clothing and a gym membership and effort. If money is your idol, it needs you to fantasize over it, it needs you to earn it, it makes you want to try to gain it or to protect it. Your idols need you, but they can't deliver anything that you think they can provide. And you know, you can live, actually you can, you can live without a reputation, music, a phone, or money. People all over the world do. You actually can live without the internet. It's possible, right? Like, life does not consist in the things that you have. But, man, we'd go to a a teen camp and the kids would be telling me, I can't live without my iPod. I can't sleep without this. I need my music. And and you'd see them get it back like after camp, and they'd be like, Ugh, just like, they loved their device. They absolutely loved it. It was their life. Now, is there anything in your life that has become your life instead of God? Where you just go, oh, yes. You know, it may not be sticking a needle in your arm, but it's pretty much the same response when you actually get that thing, and then you're left thinking, hmm, I got to have it again. It's not enough. 
You cannot live a satisfying life apart from God. It's not possible. You can continue living dry, empty, but you cannot find that satisfaction that your soul requires except through Jesus Christ. Only God can quench the thirst of your soul. And I pray that God blows you away with His grace and His love for you. And sometimes, I'm speaking particularly to believers, we can hear truth so many times, and because we haven't responded to it, we can become quite dull to it. We become dry and thirsty. I want to just close with the story of a Scottish missionary. His name was John Patton. He ministered on the island of Anawa in the province of Vanuatu. And one of the big struggles he had was the lack of fresh water on the island. The people were very dependent in their culture on the rain. And so John, he just felt led. You know, back in Scotland, we'd dig wells. We're going to dig a well. And the people said, that's ridiculous. Rain does not come from the ground. Rain comes from the sky. Digging is women's work. You know, they, they made fun of him. And so he's like, you know what? We're digging a well. And he started digging. And he got about 12 feet down, and they had a huge cave in. And the people are saying, see, you've made the rain gods angry. You're doing things all wrong. You could have died down there. You're digging your own grave. The natives weren't willing to help him anymore. They thought he was crazy. They said, you're going to dig, and you're going to fall into the sea, and the sharks are going to eat you. So, And the chief was the prime guy trying to dissuade him from digging. He's like, you are a nut. That's not how things work around here. Rain doesn't come from the ground. He continued to dig. And when the hole was about 30 feet, one more cut of the spade caused fresh water to seep into the hole. And they brought the water to the chief. And he looked at it. And he touched it. He wasn't really sure about it. And he drank it. And he's like, rain! Rain! How did you get it? And he explained how God gave them water from the earth. And this was what Chief Namakai exclaimed. He said, Missy, wonderful is the work of your Jehovah God. No God of Anawa ever helped us in this way. The world is turned upside down since Jehovah came to Anawa. The world has been turned upside down. And I pray that God would turn your world upside down. Quoting the chief, he says, Hear me, my people, the God who could give us this water is the only true God. I command that all the idols in our houses shall be burned. We shall hear Missy John now and learn all we can about God and his son, Jesus. So if you're dry, we have a fountain in Jesus Christ. We have that living water that will spring up into everlasting life. If you have everlasting life in Jesus... Drink deeply of him, not of the things of this world. Your world, God's willing to turn it upside down and to give you that refreshment that you desire. When we've put away our idols and we allow God's word, it can be like that sharp spade. You may have been, God's word, he says, is not my word like a fire? Isn't it like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And it may have been dry, dry, dry until that last spade went in and then the water came. 
And I pray that as we're reading through these scriptures, maybe it's taken 40 chapters of Isaiah to dig away at that one thing. But let the Lord work. Let him speak to you and respond in obedience to what he is saying. Because then, when you return in simple faith to Jesus, like you haven't ever trusted him before, that's when the refreshing will come. That's when out of your soul will spring a fountain of living water. So instead of propping up a faulty idol, instead of looking to anything but God, let's trust and obey the God who promises to uphold us and to give us all we need. Let's thank him. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the power of it that you can transform us, that you want to redeem us, that you want to to fill us with your spirit and to give us eternal life through Jesus. And forgive us, Lord, when we have, we have turned from you and we have gone back to worldly things and we've tried to find our identity or our happiness in those things, in ourselves. And we confess, Lord, that they are faulty idols that tip over and we are tired of trying to nail them down. Lord, please uh, just move in our hearts expose, show us the things that are in our lives that are not of you, that that are clamoring for our attention and our worship, for our affections. And I pray, God, that you would be honored in our obedience, that we would follow after you, that we would follow you as the first, as at the first. And if there's any who are thirsty here today, Lord, I pray that they would drink deep of your love and your grace, that they would hold fast to your scripture and walk in the way that pleases you. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who upholds us and that we can trust forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.